Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I talked about day four of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. On today's episode, we discuss days five and six of that cross. That's coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. On today's episode, John Lewin discusses days five and six of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, and we begin by looking at his questioning of the defendant about a letter that he received from Susan Berman less than two months before her murder. We will illustrate this section of the discussion with abbreviated excerpts of Lewin's cross of Durst as we presented it in season two, episode 25 of Jury Duty. The next day, day five, you started out by reading Susan Berman's letter to Bob. The letter says, Dearest Bobby, I just wanted you to know how much I appreciated the two times you helped me and what a wonderful friend you've been, like the brother I never had uh, over the 30-odd years. I'm sorry I even had to ask the last time and ever, Bobby, you know that our friendship was never about money. I'm so sorry that I've been struggling these last few years and I hope to see you someday again. I don't want my last request to be the last time we communicate. Our friendship means so much to me, Bobby. I hope you forgive me for not keeping pace with your more successful life. I am still hoping to turn everything around so I will be able to repay you. Miraculously, I am still in my house, not that I want to be, but I have nowhere to move. I have to keep my three dogs, Lulu is already 12, They have become my family as a domestic harmony uh, has been the one area of life that I've never been able to get quite right. Anyway, my Showtime deal went to the next step just in the nick of time. Now it looks like it will go to pilot, but I won't know until February. Anyway, she will get me out under the landlord moving in rule, but this buys me three more months and then maybe I'll be going to pilot and I'll have the money to move. Fingers crossed. As you know, L.A. has an almost 0% occupancy rate, and it's not as easy to find a place anymore that takes dogs. And if it goes to series in May, I'd probably be moving to Toronto. Showtime shoots most of its TV series there. Pitching another Vegas series, this time to FX in December, Younger Demographics. Also, writing a book, Rich Girl Broke, a meditation on money, kind of a memoir about going broke. Almost done with the 40-book Uh, page book proposal, sending you my prologue, 
thought it might amuse you. I may have to come to New York to get a new agent. Life, so many ups and downs, Bobby, and always the unforeseen. Naturally, I'm wave thin and on Prozac from the lack of security and no feeling of well-being about the future. But I feel strong and I work every day trying to turn this around. I hope I haven't disappointed you as a friend, Bobby. All love and gratitude for friendship over the years. And after you read the letter, you asked, do you remember getting this letter, Mr. Durst? Bob said, yeah. Let me stop you. He had no way to show that he had gotten that letter. That letter's on her computer. Now, I knew he got it because my memory is there was not a phone call in between. There might have been. But I believe that he had gotten the letter because he writes a check within a couple of days of when that letter would have been written. So I think he got it. But... He could have said I never received it. So that's why, you know, I let him right there. By the way, half the time, Bob will admit to things that he doesn't have to admit to because he thinks that I can already prove them. You know, after a while, and this is what happens with clips. Ethan and I have always joked about this in these trials, in these initial examinations. I've been doing this for years. They always say the same thing. No, I never said that. No, that's not true. Clip A73. So once you've done that to them seven or eight times, you can literally say to the witness, sir, isn't it true that you had sex with a donkey? Yeah. Because they think that you're just going to hit another clip with them. You basically break them. There is a concept called learned helplessness. So one of my favorite things from my very mediocre academic career was as an undergrad where I started, University of Washington, I took a class, a sociology class, and um, they talked about learned helplessness. And I thought it was fascinating. An experiment is that you can take a rat and you put him on a grid. And the grid, you're allowed to shock a part of the grid. So the rat's on the left side of the grid. You shock it. The rat will move to the right side. You shock the right side. The rat will move to the left side. Eventually, the rat stops moving, okay? He would just take the shot because he's learned to be helpless. This is true even if you turn the grid off on the other side. He will never walk over there because he has learned that he is helpless. And so what I like to do with these witnesses is I like to set them up so that, listen, they're going to lie. I'm going to impeach you. They're going to lie. I'm going to impeach you. Then I'm going to ask them about stuff that I believe is true. But if they say no, I can't necessarily impeach them. I'm allowed to do it. I have a good faith basis in the question, but I don't have a clip. But after a while, what happens is, is they know it's true. They can't, they don't know what I do or don't have. And in essence, they've learned to be helped. So they think that no matter what they do, if they say no, I'm going to just throw another clip up there. And generally speaking, almost every witness in the end that I'm going after, they want it to end. I'm having a great time, and it's very painful for them. They just want it to stop. So that's learned helplessness in the world. So back to the letter from Susan. You said, do you remember getting this letter, Mr. Durst? Yes, I remember very well getting the letter. Yeah, he could have said no, and yeah. I would have been, couldn't have, couldn't have proven he got it. We have gone to my next thing of, well, so you just coincidentally send a check, you know, two days later, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but he helps you out. And, he does. And you said, and... It was sent November 5th, and you would agree this is after you were aware of the reinvestigation. Is that right? Correct. And she says to you, she apologizes 
for having to ask for money, but thanks you for having done that, correct? Right. Now, she does not actually directly ask you for money in this letter, does she? She's asking for money. Let me stop you right there. So something that happens with a lot of witnesses, and this is how not just Bob, but the defense operated. If I wanted the defense to do something in this case, Dick or Dave, I would ask for the opposite. If I want Bob to give me an answer, I will basically lead him the other way. So, Bob, she wasn't asking me for money, was she? Bob thinks, oh, Lewin wants me to say that she wasn't asking me for money. I'm going to show him, of course she's asking for money. Look at the language. Anybody reading this would know she's asking for money. Well, that's my point anyway, but Bob doesn't realize it. So he falls right into the trap, and he answers something like, of course she's asking for money. Not only she asked for money, but anybody reading it would know she's asking for money. By the way, she's absolutely asking for money. He's absolutely true. That was Susan's gift. Susan isn't going to come out and say, Bob, give me money. She's much too smart and much too When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. During the next part of our conversation, we move on to day six of John Lewin's cross of Robert Durst, beginning with his questioning of Durst about his sudden trip to California in late December of 2000. This section includes Durst's assertion during direct examination that he went to visit an ill friend named Diane Boucher and paid a visit during that trip to an old friend who was also a marijuana dealer. Let's talk about the Diane Boucher drive down, Lloyd Cunningham, Danny Cunningham. Yeah, and let's start at the beginning because this is a great example. So what happened? Bob originally said that he had gone to Eureka, to Arcata, Trinidad, and had been there, I think he said, like 10 days, etc. but eventually agreed he was there for a day. But it was very clear that he never left. He never went to Los Angeles. So now Bob realizes he has to go to Los Angeles, right, because he's got to find Susan's body, and he's got to have reason for going there. So here's an example of where Bob, to cover up one lie, has to come up with five other lies, which are just each lie more outrageous than the next. So where do they start? Well, Bob now can't remember. In Galveston, and in the original interviews, he said that he went out to Eureka because he needed to, like, settle his affairs and, you know, do some stuff with his house. Now, we already had that impeached. His house had been sold months before, which didn't end up being a big part of this case because Bob ended up stipulating. But we had Bob, you know, good to go. Before they stipulated, Bob wrote the note. Bob saying that he had to go there because of the house. He had known the house since April, and we can prove it, so that was a lie. Well, now Bob, not only does he have to 
get himself to L.A. He's got to explain why he's going to go to L.A. and why he's going out there right now and why it's such a short trip. So now he has to come up with Diane Boucher. And what do most Bob Durst lies involve? Well, they either involve a lawyer, a non-existent person, a dead person, or somebody who has privilege. So, of course, what's this lie going to involve? Diane Boucher, who's dead. And what's Bob's lie? It's funny. I mean, it's not just outrageous. It's actually funny. Bob is going to Trinidad to play nursemaid for Diane Boucher, who's having female surgery. Okay? Now, there are very few men that I can think of, and I am not one of them, who would be flying across the country to help out a friend who's having female surgery. It just wouldn't happen. Now, there are, I guess, a few guys out there that might. Bob Durst is not one of them. He's not going to help. He's so self-involved, he's not going to help anybody. But let's start with what happened. Well, I start questioning him, and, you know, what does she have? Female surgery. What does that mean? Um, You know, uh, female surgery. So what's his version? Well, now he's got, okay, he's going to take care of her, but he has to explain why does he end up in Garberville. Because Bob knows that we have a call. He's got to explain that call. So what's he saying? He drops her off at the hospital to have this female surgery, right? He is supposed to pick her up that afternoon, and she's supposed to be ready around 2 or something, but he doesn't make any calls until 3 o'clock. So how do you know what's happening with her? Where is she? Is she sitting by the curb? Well, he has to do that because he has to explain going to Garberville. Well, now next set of lies. got to go to Garberville, and he's got to do the whole Danny Cunningham thing, which we'll get to in a second. Well, now he's got to explain. He has to go. Remember, he never went back. The trip to Garberville was driving down to Susan on the 22nd, okay? He never went back. He went straight down there, got down there on the on the night of the 22nd, and he killed him. But he can't have that. So he's got to go back up, and he's got to pick up Diane Boucher. So remember, well, what kind of condition was she in? Remember, he puts her in the car, and she's, like, drugged up. So when she by the curb, you know, what's just, like, waiting for you, like, in a wheelchair. And I'm asking sarcastic questions because it's absurd. I want to convey in my questions, this is fucking absurd. So, well, do they give you care instructions? Yeah, an industrial-sized tampon. What the fuck is that? Who even, where did it come from? What is it? Now, as... Carmen would tell you, if she's just had some kind of vaginal surgery, they're not putting any tampon in there, much less an industrial-sized tampon, whatever that might be. But, I mean, it's hysterical. So, okay, so what happens? I take her home. Uh, what do you do when you get home? We have dinner. Now, I don't know what he's going to say. Hey, who cooked it? She did. That's a can't-lose question, okay? Because do you think Bob Durst can cook? Do you think any juror thinks he's going to cook? No. If he says he's going to cook, I'm going to ask him what he cooks, where it was, what he's doing. But, of course, what does he say? Ah, she cooked. Um, this is just great, right? I mean, she's gone from completely under having to be assisted in the car to coming home and making him dinner. Hey, who did the dishes? Ah, she did. I mean, I don't, I'm not expecting that answer. You know, I'm throwing it up there. Hey, how outrageous will he make it? So, you know, I'm listening to this. Some of his lies made me laugh. They were funny. You'd see me laughing because I couldn't help myself. So, fine, he gets up the next morning. What do you do? We go to breakfast. Do you make breakfast? No. We went to a place. How'd you get there? We walked. Okay, how far? You know, uh, what is it, half a mile or a mile, whatever it is. 
the woman just had surgery the night before and has an industrial-sized tampon in her vagina, apparently. And she's now hiking to breakfast. I mean, Carrie, it's absurdly funny, correct? Beyond the pale. In this next section of our conversation, Lewin and I examine his impeachment of Durst's testimony on direct examination about his visit to a college friend weed dealer. The abbreviated examination is drawn from Season 2, Episode 26 of this Jury Duty podcast. So, all right, we got to back up because we have the whole Danny Cunningham. Okay, so here's how the Danny Cunningham part of the cross-examination went. You bought a pound of marijuana from your old friend from college days, correct? Correct. You, you know, I noticed, Mr. Durst, when you were testifying, you didn't give a name. Why didn't you give the guy's name? Why did you just call him an old friend from college? Well, I don't want to do Don't want to get him in trouble. You're concerned that in 2021, he's going to get in trouble for a pound of weed that he sold 21 years ago. Is that your testimony? My testimony is I did not use his name because I did not want him to get in trouble. Well, here, you don't have a choice. What's his name? Danny Cunningham. Danny Cunningham. I assume his name is Daniel Cunningham? I knew him as Danny Cunningham. And you knew him from college. That means you went to school with him at Lehigh? Each of these things that you bring up has to do with me abbreviating something or speaking loosely. I did not know him from my college days. I knew him from my graduate school days. When we were both at UCLA, the PhD program for economics. Tell me about Daniel Cunningham. What do you know about him? What do I know about him? Yes. Tell me everything you know about Daniel Cunningham. That will take quite a while. Oh, I'll wait. Okay. So Daniel Cunningham dropped out of the PhD program at about the same time that I did and he moved to Garbersville, and he bought land contiguous with the Redwood Forest. Let me stop you. How old is Daniel Cunningham? About my age, I guess. And how tall is he? Taller than me. Give me approximate height and weight. Let's say 5'9", 160 pounds. Is he, uh, is he a male white? Is he a white guy? He's a white guy. And your testimony is that he moved to Garberville when? Around 1968 or 1969. And when he moved up there, was he growing marijuana? What was the deal? He grew marijuana. So your testimony is that he would grow marijuana and you would buy it from him? Correct. You didn't have a connection closer to Trinidad or Eureka where you would buy marijuana? No. How often did you buy marijuana from him when you lived there? Probably every four to six months. So a pound of marijuana would last you four to six months? Correct. And it's your testimony that you would pay about five grand for the pound? Correct. And when's the last time you had contact with Daniel Cunningham? Probably around 2000. And seven. And how many times do you think over the years you bought weed from Daniel Cunningham? Twenty. And you would always pay cash? Yes. Would you always drive to Garberville to get the weed? 
Yes. So you've driven there approximately 20 times, is that correct? I bet the car has drove more times than I bought marijuana there. I want you to tell me exactly how you would get to Danny's house. Give me the roads you would take. Where exactly does he live? Let's start with, what's his address? He's off the grid. He's off the grid. So if he's off the grid, how would you find him to buy marijuana? I knew where he lived. Describe exactly where he lived and how you would get there. You would take the road from 101 and you would get off where you should get off and go north about a half a mile. That would be Dan, Danny Cunningham's farm. So, Mr. Durst, would you agree that telling me you would get off at, quote, the road where you're supposed to get off is not a description that anyone could ever find? Would you agree? Sure. What's the road? I don't know the name of the road. So you had a farm. Tell me about this farm. Well, in addition to growing marijuana, he sold organic eggs and organic tomatoes. You've admitted to lying and committing perjury, correct? Correct. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you have found when you personally lie and commit perjury, that you like to include a lot of details. Would you agree that's a fair assessment? No, in terms of including lots of details, I don't include more details than I think are necessary to answer a question. And remember, I don't know what he's going to say. So I just got to roll with the lie. Where did you go? I went to Garberville. Well, you know, he had said he'd gone to Garberville and he'd bought, you know, a pound of marijuana, I think he said for 10 grand or something. Some outrageous amount of money that made no sense. But he said he bought it from, you know, a guy he went to college with. So that's important because that's not, you know, that was his original lie. But he forgets, well, he went to college at Lehigh. So he now has to actually it wasn't college. It was UCLA. And give the guy's name, of course. So then he ends up, you know, I don't want to get him in trouble. And it's like, wait, 20 years ago? Yeah, what's his name? You have to tell us. Danny Cunningham. And that was one, by my memory, where I did not pick it up. I think it was Tim that picked it up. And, you know, so, you know, we end up realizing, you know, I, I end up getting communicated. Hey, he said, you know, Lloyd Cunningham, et cetera. So that's absurd. So then I'm able to now go through all of the stuff about Danny Cunningham. And I know Danny Cunningham doesn't exist. We all do. And I'm just going to watch Bob start lying. So that was my favorite set of lies in the whole case. My favorite set of lies was Danny Cunningham. And they start with, well, where does he live? He, he lives off the grid. Well, what, is, what does that mean? He's off the grid. Well, he has an address. I mean, you know, he has a farm. Where's the farm? Well, you go down the 101, you get on whatever it is, and, quote, you get off on the exit you get off at. Well, Mr. Durst, you realize that we can't find, quote, the exit that you're supposed to get off at that you get off at. What exit is it? I don't know. Well, you understand in that description, we can't find it. Uh, where do you go? You turn left. What do you do next? You go up a mile. Okay, what's up mile? He has a farm. My memory is he says he has a 100-acre farm, and typical Bob, he has organic eggs. So every time he lies, is just an opportunity for him to get hit 
on more absurdity. So then he's got to drive back. And he says he's stuck behind a logging truck. And I asked him, did any logs fall off the truck that you had to saw with your bow saw? And no, no logs fell off the truck. And, and, and obviously, I'm asking those questions because I'm making a mockery of his defense. It's bullshit. It, it makes no sense. You know, the biggest insult that you can give somebody is not telling them you're a fucking liar. It's literally laughing at them, okay? Far right. worse. And, you know, beyond that, you say to him, Mr. Durson, this morning I showed you a handwriting report. Do you recall that? Yes. And you agree you had a chance. You looked at that handwriting report, correct? I had a chance, yes. And I put the, was Mr. Henderson briefly put it up on the screen. Do you recall that? No. After you ended up looking at the handwriting report, I was examining you regarding your friend who you bought the marijuana from. And what name did you say? What was his name? Danny Cunningham. Mr. Durst, are you aware of what the name of the handwriting expert on the report that I gave you was? No. Lloyd Cunningham. Maybe they're related. Is it possible, Mr. Durst, or is in fact what happened that similar to the movie Usual Suspects, you looked at this report, you saw the name Cunningham, and that's the name you decided to give when you were naming your marijuana dealer. Isn't no, that what that happened? Is, that is not possible. So it's a coincidence that you came up with that name, even though we showed you before that it says Lloyd Cunningham on the report? I assume that it is a coincidence. That's all I know they're related. When I showed it originally, it wasn't just on the list. I had said the name Lloyd Cunningham a couple of times. So it wasn't just that he read it. We said it, and that's what happened. I mean, again. And then, of course, you brought up the usual suspects. Yeah, you're, that's what I was going to say. All the crazy stuff in this case. More crazy shit than it's ever happened in any trial I've ever seen. On top of everything else, you literally had the usual suspects played out in real life. So Bob is literally putting into practice the usual suspects. A movie. You know, that's why I'm in shock when we're looking at it going, oh, my God, I mean, he's, you know, during closing, I think I made the argument, you know, he could have said, you know, Danny courtroom, you know, Danny bailiff, you know, et cetera. I mean, it's so absurd. I mean, who would expect that you would ever have, like, the usual suspects come up in this case? Like so many things in this trial, Kerry, if somebody wrote this trial, this case, as fiction, you would walk out. I mean, just as an example, you know, someone comes in to me to make a pitch, right? And they're saying, hey, listen, so what's going to happen is the prosecutor is going to say to the $12 million defense attorney, hey, why don't you guys act it out yourself, right? And the defense attorney is going to do that. Anyone would say, that's absurd. Are you kidding me? A first-year public defender that wouldn't work with. I mean, you're going to lose all credibility. You can't have a scene like that. You know who would respond like that? Me. I would tell you that's absurd. It's not believable.
But, you know, I mean, again, it might not be believable, but it happened in front of all of our eyes. And those things happened over and over again. You know, the breath thing. The blood around Susan. He denied knowing what coagulated blood looks like. Right, yes. Well, right, I have no idea. Wait, didn't you dismember a body? (laughs) What did you do with Morris's blood? I mean, he just opened up. I mean, that's one of those things, Terry, where, you know, what people would say is that if Bob is talking about his knowledge of dismemberment and what blood looks like or doesn't look like or what he remembers with respect to blood dismemberment, you're losing, right? That's just... No matter what else is coming out, if you're having that conversation, it's a giant negative. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I conclude our deep dive into day six of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst, and move on to day seven of that cross. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 